I'm Serene Jones, and I am very happy to welcome you to the first plenary of the 2016 American Academy of Religion annual meeting. Uh, the theme this year is uh, revolutionary love. Um, you all have seen in your booklets an account of what, why that term and what it means in this context, um, a term referring to the social force of love um, and its capacity to build up and tear down, to arrange and disarrange and create. Um, as we were planning out the series of plenaries for this year related to revolutionary love, myself, um, Eddie Gloud, the next president, and David Gushy, the president to, to follow him, agreed that we couldn't talk about love without having a special session devoted just to the topic of hate. We did that a year ago, um, having, uh, we knew what the content would be regardless of the outcome of the election, but I don't think any of us imagined uh, the magnitude of what we would be facing today. Um, so the topic of this panel is the hatreds of our day, their origins, their relations to religious thought and practice, and the varied strategies available to us to disrupt their power. Um, we're very lucky to have Cornell West presiding over the conversation. Um, we have as our panelists Eddie Gloud from Princeton University, Amir Hussein from Loyola Marymount University, and Myra Rivera from Harvard University. Um, you all, if you don't know a lot about all these people, you should, so look at their bios. I'm not gonna go into it right now because we have a lot to talk about. So I'm gonna turn it over to Cornell. Thank you. Oh, it's an honor and blessing for me to be here to try to facilitate this dialogue. I first want to acknowledge the visionary leadership of Professor Serene Jones, not just at Union Seminary, but also at the AAR. And you just give it up for us. And to be in dialogue with Professors Glaude and Rivera and Hussein is going to be dialogical, it's going to be Socratic and conversational. I just want to begin with some reflections because in all honesty, we have to come to terms of what it means to actually engage in a shift from a neoliberal regime to a neo-fascist regime. And I use the neo-fascist regime in quite explicit terms, the ways in which you're able to mobilize forms of hatred, hatred of persons, hatred of groups, and do it in such a way that it's tied to the rule of big money on the one hand, it's the expansion of empire and forms of militarism on the other, and then to try to convince poor and working class people that they ought to be part and parcel of the neo-fascist rhetoric. Now, Donald Trump is not, has not yet been able to translate the neo-fascist rhetoric into policy, but it's fairly clear given the folk who he's mobilizing around him at the highest levels of the state apparatus that he has this in mind. So this is very, very frightening. And it is, in fact, a moment in which we will be tested. And for me, it, I begin with a Socratic moment, a self-examination, and then a Gramsci-like moment, critical self-inventory. By self-examination, what I mean is the ways in which I've got to come to terms with the elements of hatred inside of myself. And I've always tried to be part of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and others who believed in a charitable Christian hatred. Christians must learn how to hate right, hate injustice, hate poverty, 
hate unfairness, hate cowardice, hate forms of conformity in which we're well adjusted to injustice. Hatred, it ought not to be something alien to those who are fundamentally committed to loving persons. And Martin King echoing that Puritan preacher, Joseph Bentham in 1636, when he said to hate to sin but love the person is a form of charitable Christian hatred. And that is very much my tradition. I speak, of course, parochially as a Christian, but universally as a Christian, too, because religious persons of whatever rich tradition, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, we can go on and on and on, learning how to love right, learning how to hate right, so that when we're able then to straighten our backs up and tell the truth and be parts of efforts, movements, forms of organizing and mobilizing that prevent a united front against the escalating neo-fascism, beginning with our transgender folk, the ones who are most hated as persons, beginning with our Muslim brothers and sisters, beginning with our Mexican immigrants, those who are most hated in the name of our learning how to hate right, learning how to love right. So I'm going to just begin with a question, namely, how would you all characterize the dominant forms of hatred in this neo-fascist moment, and how ought we to best resist? Who would like to jump in on that query? And I'm going to sit down. Let me start with the unenviable task of trying to follow Brother West. Uh, yeah, no, no pressure uh, uh, here. Uh, so I'm uh, Amir Hussein. I'm a Muslim. I teach about uh, Islam. Uh, so John Esposito has spoken of uh, what he calls the normalization of Islamophobia. You know, that's sort of the the fear here, uh, and not. Not so much Mr. Trump, but the people he surrounds himself with. You know, uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who's probably going to be the National Security Advisor, has said that a Islam is a cancer, b Islam is an ideology and not a religion. And if it's not a religion, it's not protected under the First Amendment. You know, and so you deal with those kinds of things. Forget about forget is the wrong word. You know, Steve Bannon uh, with Breitbart. Uh, Mayor Giuliani is potentially Secretary of State. Uh, you know, th those are huge problems uh, for Muslims. And so, um, I, I don't mean this as a shameless plug, but I have this this new book, uh, Muslims. Yeah, I know, I know, uh, <laughs> Muslims in the Making of America. But this actually goes to what Brother Russ was talking about. That I think part of the problem is we don't see Muslims as normal everyday folk. We don't see the history, you know. And so the 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 real connection between black folks and Muslims, at least a quarter to 35% of American Muslims or African Americans with a history of uh, oppression, you know, all sorts of things going on there, but also the contributions that uh, we have made. You know, This year, we lost the greatest of all time, you know, our brother, your brother, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, American Muslim. What does that mean, that this American Muslim was perhaps the most famous man in the world in the pre-internet age? We don't think about that. When he refused induction in 67 into the Vietnam War, that was not popular in 67. When he converted the Nation of Islam, that was not popular. When he became Cassius Clay, when Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, that was not a popular thing to do. You know, when he died, we think of him as this kindly old man, but, and the Muslimness has sort of come out of him, but to think that here was this man as a Muslim 
who, who changed uh, America. And so, so for me, I think part of it is that, it's reclaiming that history, it's understanding that history so that if Islam is seen as normal every day, then the kind of radical terrorist acts that unfortunately some Muslims commit, you know, d don't need to be out there. You know, the, this idea that if, if Islam is part of the, of the fabric of America, then you don't feel the need to have to defend Islam, uh, you know, in that kind of way. I have to confess that when I agreed to do this, I did not imagine this would be the context in which we would be talking about hate, and, and even had some resistance to thinking with a language that was forbidden to me at some point in my life. Um, but it turned out to be quite productive. Uh, on the one hand, as, as we all know, the hate seems to be the best way to name a lot of what we're seeing, not only the violence against trans people, against Muslims, against those who are identified as immigrants, but also all this hate speech. And identifying something as hate speech not long ago was kind of controversial. How do we identify it? Um, and now, because of the intensification of the use of hate speech, it has become easier to see how it participates in broader practices to dehumanize people. So we, we see more clearly how, for instance, the denigrating speech against immigrants authorizes random violence against any Latinos. So, so the connection between hate speech and, and violence has become uh, very clear. I think another aspect that we need to make more clear, and I've, I've had to make this argument recently in relation to the, to the students' protest, is that even if the threats of the speech never actualize, even if this person is never actually uh, the recipient of violence, living under threat does harm to anybody's body. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an accumulation of harm that words do that becomes more and more clear. And in that, way of thinking might open us to think also about all the other things that work not immediately, not perhaps intentionally, but that produce slow death. And I mean all the policies, all the things that are put in place day in and day out through seemingly small decisions but that end up tearing apart the conditions of possibility for the flourishing of communities. And here I have to think about the, the situation of Puerto Rico right now, mm -hmm. uh, where the bureaucratic board might have the last word in terms of the very survival of families, the very survival of people. 
So in, in the name of small decisions of authorizing this invoice or that invoice, we are actually tearing down hospitals, schools, health systems, etc., etc. So I, I'm not sure the language of hate always helps us remember those slow processes by which um, slow death is delivered. Um, and I also want to think about that slow death because it seems to require a different type of attentiveness as a response, right? Uh, and I think it has to do with what, after neoliberalism, uh, but what kind of attentiveness we develop, what kind of resources do we have to think about the connections between all these different uh, mechanisms that we're seeing in, in the violence we're seeing spread in our country. Well, that, that was something to think about in so many different ways. I wanna thank um, uh, Serene for uh, getting us all together and thank you Cornell for asking the question that I cannot answer. <laughs> Um, but I want to do something, and I want to do two things by way of trying to reach for an answer and, and be a bit abstract. So one is to think about um, neoliberalism and its relationship to neo-fascism, but neoliberalism in, in the sense in which it produces a particular kind of self. Neoliberalism not just simply as a set of economic practices and economic philosophy, right? But neoliberalism as a kind of political rationality that produces a certain kind of self that is really rooted in competition and rivalry, right? So one of the things I want to suggest is that we are experiencing a moment of imaginative capture. Imaginative capture where we can't see beyond the reality of now where competition and rivalry become the principal values that define our relation to one another. Uh, we see this in our departments. We see this in, you know, I said, you know, we can just talk about it, right? We see it in the way in which we interact with each other. Um, uh, so we see it at that level, right? So we can't see beyond the reality of now, and then we can't see ourselves in others, right? Because we stand over and against them as opposed to alongside them, right? So what happens when you have a neoliberal conception of the self where we move from citizen to entrepreneur, where competition and rivalry become the defining values that, that, that orient us to each other? Um, and so what you get is this kind of evisceration of notion of community, an evisceration of an idea of care, an openness, right, to uh, certain kinds of evil. So that's one uh, notion I want to talk about. Then there's the, the demographic reality. Right? And that is to say, in some ways, what we're, what we're witnessing, and here I'm just thinking about Jimmy Baldwin hmm. in that extraordinary essay in 1961 on the dangerous road before Martin Luther King Jr., where he talks about, in effect, we're witnessing the death of segregation. The question is how long and how expensive the funeral will be. And we find ourselves in this moment still trying to bury hmm. it, right? But we're finding ourselves, in some ways, experiencing uh, the death, white America in its death throes. The demographic realities are clear. Robbie Jones talked about that in the last session. We know that for the first time in the history of us taking the data, there are more brown and black babies born than there are white babies. We know Obama was one in 2012 without the majority of white folk voting for him. The demographics don't constitute destiny, but the demographics certainly suggest that the idea of white America is dead. 
done. It's a wrap. And then at the moment you suggest that, right, you started thinking back on your Mary Douglas. You go back to your Mary Douglas. You go back to your Rene Girard. Mm. You go back to those moments when communities are in crisis, how they begin to try to define boundaries of inclusion and exclusion, and how those boundaries are often defined by way of what? Scapegoating and policing, right? Scapegoating and policing populations, defining right inside by defining outside, right? And usually that definition, that process, is attended by violence, right? So I want to think about the relationship, uh, how we think about the hates, the hatreds, and the slow death in the context of a truncated, distorted conception of who we take ourselves to be, right? Where our imaginations are captured, right? Remember Shelley says, imagination is the great, great, the great instrument of the good is the imagination, right? What happens when our imaginations are captured and we can't see beyond the reality of now? and we can't see ourselves in relation to our fellows. And how do you think about that distorted notion of who we take ourselves to be alongside of the reality that white America is in its death throes and that black and brown and others, LGBTQI, I mean, we can just go to become the ways, the means by which that community reconsolidates itself in the face of, of what's going on. So that's, that's how I would respond to the first question. Serene, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, she's got something to say. <laughs> I have, I, it strikes me uh, as I'm reflecting on this election um, and particularly on all of those white women who voted for Trump and um, sorting through the very long history behind that action, um, but how often hatreds are masked as loves. Um, and that at the very center of a kind of tribalism that allows you to hate another group of people or person is required a consolidation of community that has some rhetoric of these bonds of love at its center. Um, and so what is, you know, so we need to examine what are the loves that are producing the hatreds? Yes, yes, so. That's powerful though. I, uh, I think there's one thing to keep in mind, namely that large numbers of our fellow citizens have given up on the system. So we're only talking about the slice of citizens who voted. And one of the ways in which apathy, complacency, one of the ways in which people drop out has to do with not just the loss of hope, but a perception that the alternatives that are available aren't even worth looking at. And their voices will become very important in the attempt to build a united front in the face of neo-fascist rhetoric, what looks as if it will be translated. I think as thinkers and as intellectuals and scholars, we then say, well, let's look at some of the fascist-like treatments in the formation of the country, indigenous peoples and African peoples and women and how workers' movements were crushed. Uh, let's look at the ways in which repression regimentation, our Japanese brothers and sisters in the 40s, the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s, these elements have always already been operative. But now we have one who is heading the state apparatus, both repressive as well as administrative, 
who's able to mobilize enough of the slice of fellow citizens. And in the end, what is it, about 24% of, of Americans who voted for Donald Trump? So that's not a mass movement. It's just enough to win the presidency. You lose the popular vote, but you win the Electoral College. So it's not as if we're conceiving of a, uh, a Goliath, capital G-O-L-I-A-T-H. We're just dealing with a Goliath, small g which is still serious, but that's important to keep in mind when you look at fellow citizens and the complexity and the, and the ambiguity that some of them still might feel given the fact that we end up with a Donald Trump at the moment. But the interplay between these various kinds of loves and these various kinds of hatreds, I think, are, very, are crucial. And then, of course, the situation of the colony Puerto Rico itself, which has been dealing with the role violence, psychic, symbolic, physical, of the American empire since the 1890s is something that, that, that I think is, uh, uh, behooves us to make the kind of connections necessary to sustain the United Front. Now, are you are waiting for a second question. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you believe that this election is in some sense an indictment of the academy? Then he just puts the mic to the side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then, then he passes it to me to right, try and address right, that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Again, no, no pressure uh, there. Uh, I, full disclosure, I grew up in Canada. I became a U.S. citizen a couple of years ago. This was my first chance to vote, and so it was an interesting time to do that. Uh, hell of a way to come out of the block. <laughs> exactly. Um, in Canada, we had this expression, uh, two solitudes, that talked about the lack of relationship between English and French Canada. I think that's kind of what we see, you know, in America, the two solitudes. Like my Canadian friends, the week after the election, uh, said, are, are you still going to live in America? You know, what's it like to live in America? And my stock answer for that first week was, but I don't live in America. I live in Los Angeles, you know? Um, <laughs> And you understand where I'm going with that, you know, multicultural cosmopolitan city, but, but, but even in Los Angeles, like I was really proud of the fact that we did the kind of progressive things that LA is sort of famous for. You know, we voted for Measure M, more public transportation, more taxes for that, HHH for helping them, more taxes for the homeless, more ta tobacco taxes, more taxes for school, uh, the porn stars don't have to wear condoms anymore, um, legalizing marijuana, you know, all the kinds of things. But we voted to expedite the death penalty you know, we still want to reserve the right to be able to kill our citizens and kill them A, more efficiently and B, cheaper. So you think, what's even in this liberal progressive sort of place, we still have that going on. So I don't know that it's an indictment of the academy so much. I think, I think one of the things we don't talk, and I say this to someone who grew up working class, who grew up working class poor, we don't talk about class in this country and that kind of resentment uh, of, of folks who, you know, like, like my, both my parents are retired, but spent time in the 70s on strikes on the picket line with my dad with my mom you know moving like my, when my mom was literally my age she had to move to a different job because the job that she had working on the assembly line making fireplace screens was too hard for a 51 year old woman uh, you know because of just the physical labor involved and thankfully she found work in another factory but you think you know do we pay attention to those folks so, so in, in that sense for me it is that indictment of the academy like who, who are we talking about are, are, are we talking with people talking about people so so I think that there are some really interesting issues here for us 
I, I want to call attention to, to a connection between what Serene was saying about how the love of a particular group is related to the hatred of, of another, because it's interesting to see how the language of autoimmunity or the, the, that was prevalent in Nazi Germany has a resurgence these days with the idea of the, of the cancer. And, and the idea being that it is necessary to kill another in order to save this group. So in order to save my own body, it is necessary to kill whomever is named as, the, as a threat um, to, to this collective body. And, and I think that's, that's part of what Eddie was calling us to think, to, to go deep, deeper into thinking what are the notions of, of self or who we are and that, that are being uh, activated uh, so effectively in these kinds of ways. And I think at least one element, or at least I wonder if one of those elements is a sense uh, that we should be as individuals and as a nation not as interdependent as we actually are. And the very sense that we are interdependent and that, inter that interdependency is so often abused rather than correcting the abuse of our interdependency, what we see are discourses that are predicated upon negating, disavowing, destroying any sense of connection. And in, in the way I, I, I'm thinking about it in relation to how the immigrants can become this site uh, precisely, precisely to do that kind of work, it requires that one disconnects the history of the U.S. Mm. from what happens, what U.S. does outside of its boundaries or even within, right? But when, as long as we follow the logic of the discourse that talks about immigrants as if they just appeared um, and as if the whole of Latin America, for instance, had not been under siege mm. Uh, for such a long time. Uh, so I think, I think in terms of thinking what it demands of us educators, I think that, that kind of work is, it really puts pressure on us to, to think it at all levels, at the very fundamental philosophical level of who we are. How do we understand ourselves as beings, but also how do we understand and speak about and our histories in ways that affirm an interdependence and call out the abuses of that interdependence. Yeah, that's 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 key. So let me let me try to answer this in a different come at it from a different way, right? It could be an indictment of those of us who voted for the Green Party. No, could be an indictment. <laughs> I'm just thinking about those of us in the academy, those of us who in the academy have, take a particular understanding of politics, whether you you voted for the Green Party or whether I blanked out or, or you know, uh, arguing for strategic voting uh, in the ways in which I ordered, ar argued for it, that in some ways uh, the election is an indictment of an abstract understanding of politics that circulates in the academy. That could be one way of thinking about the indictment. Another way you could think about is the election as an indictment of us is that for the last eight years, many folk in the academy have been silent with regards to 
political, with regards to policies that have devastated uh, workers, white and black, uh, while we have been in some ways in relentless pursuit of our brand. Uh? <laughs> or, you know, now so suddenly, and you know, Jim, I was listening to this earlier, suddenly we're, we're talking about uh, the fact that somebody's gonna build a wall, the fact that somebody's gonna put up a registry, and we know that while over the last eight years, two, two million people have been deported. So now the question of deportation is an issue because it's Trump. So perhaps our complicity with a certain kind of identity politics on the part of some of us in the academy such that the election represents an indictment of us in that way. Um, could the election also point to the increasing professionalization of these spaces that are uh, where we have find ourselves engaged in all sorts of, uh, of maneuvering in order to uh, ensure that uh, our units are surviving, that we can survive as the humanities in the face of an push with regards to STEM. Uh, the, ranges, the range of, of forces, economic and political, that are, that, that are impacting how we do our work. So to the extent to which, uh, so there are a number of ways in which we can read the election as an indictment of political naivete, an indictment of political complicity and conformity, an indictment of a certain kind of navel-gazing in which the academy is actually a reflection, a site of the malaise, right? That we're not apart from these forces that have defined the world, that has distorted our characters, that have in some ways captured our imagination, that because we can write nice sentences, or some of us can, <laughs> that somehow we are outside this stuff, right? right? Uh, that maybe we haven't given enough attention to the world as ugly as it is because we're busy trying to participate in the guild, right? Get tenure, get the book out, get promoted, right? right? Um, so I mean, there's a, so, so I say this to say that the academy is just simply one institutional site among a number of institutional sites that are impacted by certain kinds of economic and, and political forces and philosophical forces that overdetermine the work that we do. So in some ways, just as the election is an indictment of America broadly, it's an indictment of the academy specifically. Just uh, three really quick things just to say. Um, I think that this, not this election, but you know, for the past 30 years, the academies should have been and has been indicted in, as it moves more to the right and is captive to corporate interests. Right. So it's a real question of what kind of academy we even have to be indicted anymore. I think secondly, it really calls into question the ability for the social sciences to be the site of moral reflection. Um, because first of all, the social sciences failed us in in a, in a grand public way, in sort of weighing in on what was happening demographically. Um, but secondly, we've sort of turned over from the humanities to the social sciences as if statistics can give us the moral frameworks that we need to reflect. Um, and thirdly, I think that the academy, uh, what's left of it, is going to be a principal battleground um, for what's ahead of us. And we have to hope that those institutions have faculties and leaders in them strong enough to take on what's going to come because 
the only leverage that the state has against many of these populations are the institutions that manage them. And so it's going to have to be worked through institutions, um, the largest of which in our country are uh, these massive community college, state, um, and university systems that will be used in this process. So. And it will be, it will be interesting to, to watch and witness uh, particular cohorts experience withdrawal from the crack of access. Sure, you want me to explain what I mean what, by that? What, what do you mean by that though, brother? You want to break that down a little bit? Well, Adolf Reed, Adolf Reed, Adolf Reed wrote it as complicated as Adolf Reed, the political scientist may be, he wrote a wonderful piece entitled, the new, you know, that, it, that made the claim that the new crack was access. That over the last eight years, so many people have been more interested in getting access to the centers of power as opposed to critiquing the operations of power. Um, and so now, with this change in regime, right, and the change in regime uh, is, is decidedly fascist, but you know, in the previous regime, we had drone strikes. In the previous regime, we had economic, an economic philosophy where Wall Street benefited more. I'm sounding like you. Wall Street benefited more than, than, than Main Street and, and the like, right? So part of, part of what it means, I'm not trying to claim a kind of moral consistency or the like, but it's important that we identify the values that we cherish. What are the objects of our love? And what does it mean to stand on behalf of those, of, on behalf of that which we love, right? And it's easy right now, I think, for folks to mobilize moral energies and outrage to respond to Donald Trump. And we should and we ought to. But we need to be clear about what we are committed to in this moment. And so that once we do that, we can understand better how the Democrats failed, why so many people weren't excited about Hillary Clinton, right? What does that mean in terms of our reaction to Donald Trump and the like? What is the vision of the world that we're putting forward? Because part of the work, and I don't want to say too much, I won't say much else after this, part of the insidious work of the current moment is to force us to, be, to believe that our only options are those right in front of us. And the moment in which we concede to that, the trap has been unleashed. We're caught. And so now we find ourselves lamenting and, and worrying, and there are a variety of reasons. Rev, Reverend Jackson just hit me earlier about some of the reasons why the, the difference makes a difference. But what does it mean when we think our only options for the world we inhabit are the options right in front of us? Wow, this is a wonderful. Give us one more oh, question. Absolutely. Oh, will we have time for the demos yeah. to raise a question? We have. We have we have five oh, oh, minutes we, left before we... Before we do. Okay. So all right. All right. I was going to answer my question, but I'll move on <laughs> to the next now. Of course, it's an indictment of us. Of course. There's no doubt about that. We're involved in Paideia, robust democratic education in the face of the unruly passions and the pervasive ignorance of the demos, and we fail to the degree to which we couldn't pass it on to a younger generation so that they don't produce a neo-fascist now running the state. That is an indictment. Doesn't mean we haven't worked hard. Doesn't mean we haven't affected individuals. Doesn't mean we haven't sacrificed and suffered, but we did. We are subjects subject to be indicted to the degree to which we cannot pass on the best 
of our generation and the best of what has been bequeathed to us to the younger generation, even as they're hungry and thirsty and most, the best of them hitting the streets, willing to go to jail and not refusing to be well-adjusted to injustice. So there's nothing wrong with accepting the fact that we're indicted. We didn't say a, war, a word about the war crimes with the zones. We didn't say hardly a word about the, war, the crimes of Wall Street. We didn't hardly say a word about the, the emergence of the mass incarceration regime. We had some scholars who did, but for the most part, like most doctors, most lawyers, most scholars become accommodated to the status quo for, issue, for, for reasons of status. That's not a surprise. That's the way societies operate. And so we have to just be honest about that. The question now is, what is to be done? <laughs> Why does a Muslim get picked on? Why do I have to, like, you know, do that? In the name of Malcolm X. In the name <laughs> of Malcolm no. X, brother. Thank you, brother. No, no. And that's, that's that history. You know, we, we've, I'm not saying we, we forget, but we often don't remember sometimes that, you know, you, you look at that, that history, that background, that, you know, now that Dr. King has been safely dead for 50 years, we can sort of lionize him, you know. In 66, 67, he, this was not popular, the kinds of things that, that, that he was saying, you know, uh, uh, Brother Eddie. Absolutely, absolutely. And, it, you know, and it's very weird to sit higher than Reverend Jackson, so my apologies for that, sir. Uh, it's not my choice. Uh, so just that, that, that sense of, you know, how do you make those sorts of connections? I mean, Eddie talked about the drone strikes. You know, I was in uh, uh, Chicago uh, the day after Anwar al-Awlaki, the, the number two in Yemen, was killed in a drone strike by President Obama. And that was with Amina McLeod, wonderful African-American scholar, talking with Sherman Jackson, wonderful African-American scholar, about the fact that, you know, this is a U.S. citizen. You know, yes, he's a bad guy. Yes, he's head of al-Qaeda in Yemen, but he's a U.S. citizen. Can he be killed by executive order of the president? And the answer is, yes, he can. And it's like, that's a problem, you know, uh, there. So, so in that sense, it, the, the, this current moment isn't, it's not a whole lot new here for some of us. Quick answer. I mean, I, I, I think some of the things that we have been saying are already entangled with the, with the response to what is it that, that needs to be done. And I was getting a, a little nervous with the indictment um, because while it is crucial to recognize the, the failures of, of accommodation, it's also crucial to claim the spaces where, where education right, right. happens. Right. And, and, and those are the spaces where the love uh, translates right. into precisely the, the labor of, of, of teaching and the labor of teaching ourselves in order to be better teachers. Uh, and I, I would want to claim that space. No, absolutely. 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 Just really quickly, we got this, you know, stand in the breach. You know, the late political theorist uh, Sheldon Wolin gives us an idea of democracy as fugitive, where he gives up on this notion of democracy as a set of rules and procedures as a way of governance, but really democracy as fundamentally standing in opposition, that you have these moments of openings. Just thinking about the late Stuart Hall and the way in which he talks about these conjunctural moments, moments of crises that are also moments of possibility. How do we stand in the breach? Right? Stand in the breach, and stand in the breach with the ethic of, say, Miss Ella Baker. Stand in the breach with the ethic of those young folk as SNCC, where you, uh, where you affirm the capacities of everyday, ordinary folk 
to transform their circumstances. In other words, we're going to have to shift the center of gravity of our politics and begin to imagine a local politics, a grassroots politics, right, that begins right where we are and understand that the local is always global because it's global. To understand, to understand that we have the skill set to network it, to network it, to connect it. So what's happening in Cleveland is also happening in Calcutta. What's happening in Calcutta is also happening in Oakland. What's happening in Oakland is happening in Kingston. So we can begin to imagine a politics where we can take advantage of this crisis that has been ev made evident. The contradictions of neoliberalism are in full view. So we have to just stand in the breach, stand in opposition in the name of the loves that we hold so dear. So let's open it up to, uh, I'll stand here so I can see. Let's open it, let's open it up now to uh, conversations and questions from you all. And there's two mics uh, here, one in the middle and one over there. If you go to the mic and keep your questions short and pointed and we'll throw them to our panelists. So. My name is Ivy Lyons. I, I have a question for the panelists. Um, do you think that part of our lack of accountability is because we have somehow separated ourselves in the academy from those who in the, in the lower education? In other words, we don't encourage or we don't look to people in the academy in kindergarten through 12th grade. Oftentimes, we think of it strictly in terms of just collegiate. And I think if we can reconnect with those in the lower grades, because they are children, and we can connect with them, because they are caught in many places we know where they are caught in a bad school system, we can address that. And oftentimes, by the time they get to us as college, we have to unravel and unknot a lot of problems because of the books that they, that they have to use. And those textbooks are driven by corporate interests. So invariably, that is part of the problem. So what, what, can, what can we do to help address that, that gap between those in the academy? Because these are academy. And the academy goes back a long way. Muslim, Islamic institutions, Christian institutions, all kinds of are part of the academy. We stretch a long way, a long time. So how can we reconnect with those who are younger? So, so let's take four questions and then um, open it up to discussion. So we'll go over here. I can't see you, but go ahead. Thank you. Um, my question is in relation to the indictment of the academy. Where is the genius of the hypocrisy of many of these political figures who are products of the academy, Giuliani going to NYU for law school, um, Trump himself going to UPenn? Where is the genius of these people who have been products of intellectuals in the academy now coming back and speaking to middle-class America and getting them to, in essence, vote against their own best interests because they seem to just show care within the national media, that they care about middle-class issues. Where have we gone wrong on the democratic side that we no longer are able to talk to them when we are proud products of the academy? Okay, over here. Hello. Um when I think of those who voted for Trump, I think of 24 to 25% who voted for him, and then 24 to 25% who voted for Clinton. Uh, but what about the other 49% of Americans who apparently did not vote? Um, what are your reflections on the fact that there seems to be low voter turnout in our elections? 
Thank you. And then one, one more question over here. My question is actually about the idea of um, democracy standing in the breach, because it seems to me that that is in some sense in conflict with um, the general goal of modern capitalism, in the sense that to stand in the breach is to put yourself in harm's way, and the general goal of modern capitalism is to convince you that with enough stuff you can be comfortable all the time. So we have a conflict and a tension between comfort and discomfort. And how do we address that? And how does that affect the way we're going to live since we have to have a functional economy to feed people and take care of healthcare and all those other things we want? Thank you. So we have a question about um, earlier um, education and the Academy's connection to that. We have a question about the role that the Academy has played in producing the fascist leadership that we have and how we think that through. Um, we have a question about the 49% that don't vote, and then we have a question about the conflicts between democracy and capitalism. So just handle those four, okay? <laughs> I'll start with the first one, actually. Uh, uh, my partner teaches uh, fourth grade at public school in Burbank, and, and I say in all seriousness, she's the real teacher. You know, I, I couldn't do what she does. I couldn't be with 32 nine-year-olds for uh, seven hours every day. Uh, and so I absolutely, I think that that connection there, you know, what can we do? Well, do you go in? Like I, I go in every semester and talk to these kids because those kids were me. You know, the Burbank School District, you know, 40% of these kids are Armenian, 40% of these kids are Latino, a number of these kids come from uh, other countries. Uh, two of the kids in our class don't speak English because they just, you know, came in uh, that week. That was me as a kid, came in from Pakistan. I, I hit my stride in fourth grade because, like, you know, grades two to three, it was just you're learning English, you know. And so being able to talk with them, do that kind of thing, I, I bring them uh, uh, pencils from my university just to start talking to them about university. And, maybe, you know, you're, you're in fourth grade, you haven't even thought about high school or middle school yet, but there, there's places beyond this. So I think absolutely we make those kinds of, of connections. And to me, with elementary school, not even middle school or high schools, it's a more natural thing, you know, for those of us who teach freshmen in university, the understanding that three months before they got here to our class, they were freshmen, they, they were seniors in high school. So what's the connection between high school and university? So I think some of us do that kind of stuff. But I think absolutely making those connections, going to those schools, you know, talking to kids uh, there, looking at what they're, they're learning, you know, is really important. And yet the gutting of our public school system is going to be a wonder, on the top agenda of the present fascist administration. So which is a continuity with neoliberal Absolutely. attitudes toward education, with privatizing Charter and so schools. forth. Yep. But I, I think, at least in, in the tradition of the West, again, I'll be a bit uh, provincial here, uh, to begin with Socrates and the fearless and an unintimidated speech, the frank speech that gets one in trouble, or legacies of Jerusalem with Amos through Esther all the way through Martin King and uh, Dorothy Day, Fearless speech out of deep love, truth, neighbor, justice. Some of us even steal enemy, charitable Christian hatred. Refusing to reduce the humanity of the gangster just to gangster acts. So that possibilities for change still loom large. That's how naive some of us wouldn't live and die for that. Because that's our tradition. Some of us are willing to cut against the grain. So that how do we become exemplars in our fallible ways of a certain kind of courage because young people, they don't necessarily need academicians to come to the neighborhood. They need to see courage manifest in the context in which you find yourself so that they can become more 
courageous in the ways in which they want to live their lives. That's a challenge. No, I, I, I just want to concur with, with the comments about education and also remind ourselves that part of our task ahead will be actually to defend uh, institutions of education all through uh, mm -hmm. elementary school, up, all the way up to universities, to public universities that are uh, vital uh, for, for our societies and that, and, the, and that the ones that will be under threat are of course the ones that serve the very communities that we are always taught to regard as unimportant. Uh, so that, that will be in itself something that will require our attention and our defense. I, I just really quickly, I think we need to understand we can't have um, uh, a romantic understanding of the academy in the sense that uh, the academy is a site to produce intellectuals to justify oppressive regimes as well as intellectuals who, who will uh, be progressive in their outlook uh, to offer a, a more progressive vision. So you think about all those Straussians in George W. Bush's um, uh, uh, cabinet, right, justifying his foreign policy, right? I'm thinking a lot of Chicago people. Um, and, and you think about all those Princeton folk uh, in, in, in Harvard folk and all these academics who find themselves right in government right offering their intellect to justify uh, policies for that maintain US dominance uh, so we don't want to think about the academy as this kind of uh, uniform site right that is producing intellectuals for a number of different constituencies to justify all sorts of actions um, I would also would want to say really quickly about you know, one of the things that I, that I think we need is a revolution of value, and this is an echo of Dr. Dr. King's mm -hmm. important uh, claim in Where Do We Go From Here in 1967, right? Um, and in Where Do We Go From Here, he talks about those triple evils of militarism, capitalism, and racism, right? And understanding that we can't really address either one without addressing the others, that they're intimately connected. So as we talk about standing in the breach, we must understand that wars, five fronts right now, Wars will impact the very ways in which we understand how we will intervene on the domestic front, right? That the ways in which capital is circulating and the ways in which it presumes disposable people will impact people of color in very specific sorts of ways. So we have to have this really complex, I think uh, uh, it was said in the last panel, we have to have the understanding of these interlocking systems of oppression. I didn't say intersectional, I said interlocking systems of oppression, right? So it's not just this pile upon layers of identity, but the ways in which these systems of oppression, right, implicate and complicate uh, and devastate our lives. So that was me trying to answer three of the four questions. Stay <laughs> I'm done. So here I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw out a question. Uh, what all four of you share is your scholars and teachers working in religion specifically. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the academy, but say something about the specific role that the scholar and teacher and thinker about religion has to play in this moment, both in terms of Im their implication in it and the capacity for resistance. We, we have I, no I role, so never mind. Okay, we'll go now. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in. I mean, and I, I have actually been thinking about it a lot um, 
in my hesitation was because there's a, a way in which I would frame my approach to the study of religion. Um, and it has to do with this uh, comment that, that uh, Emmanuel Levinas makes in Totality and Infinity when he says uh, that he's talking about the, the commandment not to name the, the, not to use the name of God in vain. And he says, what that means for me is that you ought not to even name God unless you're speaking from a position of ethical responsibility. Uh, so, th so those two things are, are, are connected uh, in the way I, or where, where in the places I find yeah. hope in, in religion. And I, but I think it is crucial because it gives, or it possibly, it can give us a moral ground uh, from which to speak precisely against um, legal, institutional, uh, economic frameworks of value. Mm -hmm. So if we can claim it as, as that, as a, as a ground for values that stand and can stand in safeguard of others, even if that means to stand against the institution or the or even the law, um, then that that would make it uh, a, a, an enormous contribution, and I think it is invaluable at this precise moment in history. So uh, I had this extraordinary uh, privilege of being mentored uh, by the great Canadian scholar of religion, uh, and I would argue one of the great scholars of religion period in the 20th century, uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith. Uh, you know, and, and you look at uh, Wilfred's work, deeply, deeply rooted in the fact that he and Muriel lived in India from 40 to 46 while he was sort of doing the, the dissertation that got rejected at Cambridge, which was a dissertation arguing from Marxist principles why the British should leave India, that he submits to Cambridge in 43. No surprise, it fails. He goes to Princeton, writes a second dissertation that like 12 of us have read, never published, you know, that's where he got his doctorate, but comes back to Lahore uh, in 1948, you know, a year after partition and the horrors and the half a million people who've killed each other. And for him, it really was that, that sense of, you know, how do you make a difference? You can't be this scientist in the lab coat that says, half a million people seem to have butchered each other. What a curious phenomenon. Let us investigate, you know. For, for Wilfred, that, that, that's immoral. You can't do that. And so the, I think the scholar of religion, uh, and just speaking personally for me, uh, having that, that, that teacher who deep knowledge, understands the language, lives with people, speaks the languages, not just speaks the languages, reads the languages, and all those languages, and understands this kind of thing, but then tries to work uh, to help. Uh, you know, and I think that, that that's the key that, that you know, we do this because this is crucial. I mean, not telling tales out of school, but, you know, one of Wilford's lines to, to one of his sons was, was basically, you know, look, by, by opting out of, and he was talking about religious community, the son sort of trying to tick off the fathers as the way that sons sometimes do with, with fathers of leaving sort of religious mm -hmm. life and community. He says, yeah, but by opting out of, of religious community, you will lose the vocabulary to discuss with your closest friends the things that matter to you the most. And so that's the key here, mm -hmm. that the humanities teach us who we are, you know, and, and, and that, that's extraordinarily important for those of us who work, you know, in the, as religion scholars in the humanities. Mm -hmm. And I think so, you know, knowing our discipline, working with our discipline, but then making that, that different standing, as, as Eddie said, in that breach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I hesitated because I've never thought of myself as a religious scholar. I've never thought of myself as a scholar of religion, that I proceed based on a fundamental calling of a lover of truth, goodness, beauty, and the holy. And it's a blessing to be conversant with scholars who have their own ends and aims. But I've always viewed myself as trying to be a force for good as a lover of those things and therefore using the life of the mind and the world of ideas as both sources of joy, because there's great joy in the classroom. And I didn't say pleasure, I said joy. Because <laughs> our culture just a joyless quest for pleasure, but I'm talking about joy. But that joy is also connected through trying to tikkun alum, trying to make the world a better place in that sense. And that's why music, for the, for the most part for me, has always been not just the model, but the source of inspiration. We walked in here and John Coltrane's playing. Well, see, that is, for me, constitutive <laughs> of what I've always tried to do in a very inadequate way, because he loves truth, he loves goodness, he loves beauty, and he loves holy. He's not Christian, he's post-Christian, I'm Christian, that's fine. That's fine. That's what it is to be part of a conversation. It's pluralistic all the way down, fallibilistic all the way down. But in the end, it's a matter of what kind of witness did I bear in the academy, outside of the academy, in the prison, wherever it is. That's the fundamental question. And that has to do with my own tradition. That has to do with the way I was raised, what I've been shaped by, and what I plan to be true to as I'm faithful unto death. Eddie, you want to end this conversation for us? <laughs> Bring no it pressure. to a. No, you know, I, I would just, 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 there's this wonderful line. I'm, I'm working on a book on James Baldwin, so he's, he's, he's with me everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. This small, short, queer, <laughs> bold, courageous black man, right? He says that, uh, you know, he was talking about the writer. He says, you know, the writer, the task of the writer is to describe who we are to ourselves as we are now to describe us to ourselves as we now are. To describe us to ourselves as we now are. And then he combines that with this wonderful phrase from Henry James. You do that work, he says, in effect, the intellectual is to engage in perception at the pitch of passion. Right? So to do that descriptive work at the pitch of passion, and my point of entry is always uh, religion. Um, so we have some very difficult days ahead. We have some really difficult days ahead. You're going to have to make some choices. You can't stand in between. You can't stand neutral. Uh, the world is going to demand much of you. And so the question is, are you ready? Will you cultivate the habits of courage or the habits of cowardliness? There's no in between. Thank you. Um, before people begin to leave, I just want to uh, identify for you how this discussion will be continued uh, over the next several days. Uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and this should be in your app, um, the Committee on the Status of Racial and Ethnic Minorities will be hosting a panel conversation on the role that the media played in this election. 
Um, tonight at 7 will be the Revolutionary Love presidential address. Um, tomorrow at noon, um, we will have uh, Kelly Brown Douglas and Michelle Alexander looking at mass incarceration and mass deportation um, in conversation right in here as a plenary session. Um, later in the afternoon, tomorrow at 5, the board itself is sponsoring an AAR gathering to just ask the question, what should the AAR be doing um, in light of this? Um, Monday morning at 9, um, a number of groups, uh, the Liberation Theology and Status subgroups have gotten together to pull um, uh, an added session together just on the question of how do we teach in the midst of this. That should be also in your app. Um, Monday at noon, we'll be hearing from uh, Julian Castro, who's the former mayor of San, of San Antonio, um, who's been in Washington, but who has been one of the most outspoken um, political figures speaking out against the wall. He'll be joining us and then to end our conversations uh, Monday evening, or better yet, to send us forth from a conversation that's only um, um, being birthed is the Reverend Dr. William Barber, who will be talking on the theme of revolutionary love. So there's a lot of, of continued spaces for this to move forward. So thank you all for coming, and we'll see you at many more of these. And thank you to the panelists. <laughs>